because I've had some a whole raft of jokes. <laughs> I I've had some run-ins with it. Uh, you might say uh, lately since our since you last gave me advice and you kind of put some of the pieces of puzzle for pieces of the puzzle together, uh, at least conceptually with how I practice. And now it's like I've become uh, a much better chill master as you were kind of uh, helping, helping me to see uh, the first time we talked. Mm -hmm. So uh, that's, but yeah, emptiness. What, what can you tell us about it? Or is well, there anything you can tell us? <laughs> It's yeah, for, there's not much without I can using say emptiness it. itself, you know. I know. Well, there's not much to it. <laughs> <laughs> That's my first joke. Emptiness. Okay. There's not much to it. Yeah. And and the second joke is, but um, it's a big topic in Buddhism because you ain't seen nothing yet. Once you see nothing as nothing, there's nothing much to it anymore. Mm -hmm. Okay. Uh -huh. No, I'm. I mean, this this is the entire teaching. There's really nothing much to any of it. We just make everything a big deal, but there's nothing much to it. And when you see that, then you can just say, "Well, really, there's nothing much there." <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but the westerners make a big deal out of it and that's why they get confused no emptiness actually does mean that it means that there's not much there there's nothing good <laughs> everything is sunyata all right. Now, the way that the Buddha explained that was there's two different occasions. One of them um, is, is that when um, the Buddha was in the sala with um, Ananda describing him, he looked around because the sala is, is a gathering place and an eating place for the monks. They'll go under the sala. Basically, the sala is good during rain so that you don't have to sit in the rain. You can sit under a uh, let us say a house that has no floor and no wall, but it does have a roof and poles to keep the roof up. That's a, that's basically a sala. In Thailand, they also have salas that have a floor. But the whole point of a sala is, is that it supports the whole house as a porch, like we live here. <laughs> no walls. All right, so they're in the sala, and the Buddha looks around, and he says, look, the sala is empty. There's no monks, there's no bowls, there's no noise, there's no clatter, there's no robes, there's just nothing here. That's the whole point of emptiness, is that we begin to notice and observe what's missing, what's not here. What's not here that should be here according to some set of rules or logic or something like that. In fact, that was the gift of Sherlock Holmes was he was not able just to do an investigation to see what was there. He also could look in the circumstances to see what's missing. What was taken? What's gone here? What do we need uh, to investigate this missing? Because that's, in fact, 
uh, a lot of the practice of the Buddha that is, uh, in many cases, is called um, via negative. In other words, all religions add things. Mm-hmm. All religions add things. They add a plastic Jesus. They add an offering plate. They all offer a confessional. They give you gods and stories and moralities and laws and churches to go to, just all kinds of things that religions give you. But the teaching of the Buddha is is that it doesn't give you anything other than the wisdom to understand what you need to get rid of because you've already been taking up too much stuff already. So it's a, uh, so basically what that means is, is that we're not going to gather things together. There are no attainments in Buddhism. What instead there is, is a dropping away, letting go of the fetters. It's kind of like letting go of the sandbags that are holding your basket that's uh, held up by a hot air balloon. Only it's not being held up, it's still on the ground. Why? Because it's loaded down with sandbags and it's got ropes. When you cut the ropes and drop your sandbags, off you go into the wild blue yonder. <laughs> Nothing much to it anymore. <laughs> okay. All right. So uh, basically what there is to it is all weight, all heaviness, all the sand cars, all the baggies, all the compounded things, all the things that we picked up. There's also a story or analogy is that we have been traveling a path down a beach, picking up one beautiful shell after another. And we've been gathering it up and putting it in a bag. And now the bag that we're carrying is very much like a Santa Claus bag, all full of our goodies and toys. All of those beautiful shells that we picked up. But that bag's gotten heavy. When are we going to sit the bag down and start sorting through it and figure out what stuff's worth keeping and what stuff's worth putting back on the ground and leaving it alone? And so then we do that. We get rid of about half the stuff. We pick the bag up, we carry on down, and we go a few more miles and pick up a few more bobbles. And then all of a sudden we recognize again this bag has gotten heavy. And so we open it up again and we throw about half the stuff out. Many of the things that we treasured and kept last time, now we're ready to throw that stuff out. (laughs) (laughs) And and we're beginning to collect some really valuable things that are worth keeping and all the rest of the garbage we just toss out. And this is the spiritual journey. How often are you going to set your bag down and empty things out? And guess what? The easiest journey you'll have in life is when your bag is empty. (laughs) <laughs> and you're not carrying anything. <laughs> yeah. So that's what the teaching of emptiness is really all about. The tension of emptiness. Now, there's a more philosophical way that we can talk about emptiness in the sense that um, basically the concept of emptiness comes from the point that there are uh, that all things, all dhammas, not just compounded things, not just uh, particles, but subparticles. Everything is void of an identity or a self. 
There's no self anywhere. Doesn't exist anywhere. But the humans are under the delusion that I am a self that's built upon many foods and factors of in consciousness and also the quality of the instinct of self-preservation. That the, to keep this body alive, it's got mechanisms in there that want to keep it alive. The mind confuses those mechanisms as a self that needs to be preserved. But when we recognize in reality that tree has no self, this laptop has no self, that mouse has no self, that cup has no self, the coffee in it has no self, the water bottle has no self, this leg has no self, this hand has no self, these eyes have no self, where is the self anywhere? There is no self. There is nothing this hardcore, permanent, everlasting, unchanging in you anywhere, which is actually kind of a magical release button of dropping that self because the self is actually what prevents us from being able to change, being able to drop all of this baggage that we think, in fact, the baggage is the self. And we couldn't drop, possibly drop myself but that self that we're carrying is actually just kind of a bag of sand. So is there any fundamental difference between no self or anatta and emptiness? Like, why do they exist as kind of two separate terms that people use, in your opinion? Well, because they're two expressions of the same thing. Okay. Just like water and steam and ice. Okay, they're just expression because of the different forms they're in, but it's the same thing. There is really no self that everything is empty of an internal inherent nature. A car is not a car until the human conceives it as a mode of transportation. That this is, in fact, the earliest example that I use a car now was the conversation between uh, uh, <clears throat> Nagasena and Melinda, the king, where the king was in the chariot. And so that uh, uh, Nagasena said, with your permission, sir, let me take your wagon apart, your uh, chariot apart, to demonstrate this concept of no self. You see the chariot here, and then he had all of the, the guys take the wheels off and put them over there in the ridge fold there and the basket over there, and then they took the basket apart and put the pile of straw there and left the board and all that kind of stuff. And then he asked the king, where is the chariot? The actual chariot was in the mind, and it was always in the mind, but the actual chariot that we think of as a chariot that's got sticks and wood and that kind of stuff that's put together in a certain configuration that can be drawn around by a horse, that is a mental concept in action. The chariot's really nothing but a mental concept of a chariot, just like you are just a mental concept of yourself, of you. And the body is the chariot when it's put back together again. But there's no inherent chariotness in a chariot. Just like and in an automobile, there's no really inherent automobileness in, um, uh, let us say, a V8 engine. There's no inherent automobileness in a set of tires. And and that sort of deconstruction process, to me, 
seems to be like a really good way to point to dependent origination, wouldn't it be? Precisely so. Exactly so. That's why we start in our teachings of dependent origination is we start with the five aggregates with the understanding that there is no self in any of the five aggregates. If there is no self in any of the five aggregates, when the, when the five aggregates come together, not necessarily in combination, but in sequences of events and, and interrelations and causes and effects, there is still no self that's inherent within the five aggregates, but the five aggregates produces an outcome, and that outcome is a self that can experience fear. But there is no inherent self inside of the five aggregates. For instance, the body. There is no inherent self in the body. That many people have lost both arms and legs. Other things, I mean, it's really interesting that some people have survived amazing uh, uh, concussions and accidents of the brain and been able to recover. They have now been able to understand uh, the nature of blindness basically through the study of computers and pixels and all of that. And so now they're able to get blind people to see by putting a, a set of warm leads on their back and have their back as a great big eyeball. And they put that through the computer and have a camera there and the people can see where they're going by pointing the camera at it and feel it on their back. Hmm. And the mind will can attach to that. So this is the kind of amazing reconfigurations that we can do as a, as a human that it's not fixed. There's no self or soul that's there. And yet the entire teaching of the soul is from the perspective of karma. In the sense of good actions give good results and bad actions give bad results no matter what. It means that you've got to have a unit or a, a core or a nut or a soul or an identification so that future results can hit upon that original object. It's still there. Yeah, see, the way I think about karma is like uh, the, just the conditions of existence that are kind of here. Oh, but now. that's cause and effect. That's uh, are not just cause, but also conditionings and effects. But okay. karma has has the quality that the, that, you know, like second, Newton's second law of physics, in fact, really helps with that, but it's stated wrong, that for every action, there's an equal and opposite reaction, okay? The, the reactions are not equal, and they're not opposite. An example of that is that when the gun fires, which way does the barrel go? It goes down and back. But the bullet goes straight. If it was actually exactly opposite, then the bullet would go through your arm backwards as well as forwards, and the gun would just stay there. So that whole idea of equal and opposite reaction is not proved. There is a reaction. But that reaction dwindles over space and time with an inverse square law. Just like the bullet does not continue on forever, it falls to earth because of gravitational forces, but it will eventually slow down and stop no matter what. Because, yeah, that makes uh, me think kind of like, you know, you throw a rock into 
a pond and and the ripples just go out and it slowly dissipates and then we're just back at placid water exactly that they when you drop that stone in the water the ripples that are the biggest let's say that we're now in a tiny little boat and when that giant boulder fell beside the boat the boat has a great big reaction to that boulder because it's so close but the boat when it goes further away from that boulder the less effect it has at an inverse square so you can go uh let us say you were very close like 10 yards you can go 20 yards and you'll have only a quarter of the amount. Then you can go uh, another 30 yards out and it's one ninth the amount of force. <laughs> okay, this is the inverse square law. That's why E equals MC square. That square is there. Okay, or in um, uh, any time that there's distance, it's always distance squared or speed squared like uh, uh, gravity, 32 inches per second per second. So that's the square in there. So mm -hmm. everything comes out, and it's basically because we don't live in a two-dimensional world. If we lived in a two-dimensional world, and things would decay uh -huh. one by one. But because we live in a three-dimensional existence, it, it goes to the square. So I don't want to get too much deeply into mathematics, but the whole point is, is that comma rots really fast with time. Uh-huh. Yeah, that's what I was about to say is it sounds like kind of the conclusion from that that I'm getting of what you've been saying on more of like the scientific or f physical level also might apply to karma the way that people typically use it, you know, good action. We live in a physical reality. It, we it, don't <laughs> I know, but I'm saying uh basically the that idea of karma that we started with it works most strongly right now that the good action affects right now more than actually you know later like most people tend to think of it is that how you see it precisely okay here's a really really clear example the school is blown away by a cyclone out in a in the prairie or whatever in uh, the 1930s or whatever and the rich man in town builds a new school his grandson now goes to that school at the age of six in the first grade. If he goes to that school the year after it's built, he's the star of the show. If he goes to that school 10 years after it's built, they'll make a give him an honorable mention. If he goes to that school at six years old, 20 years after it's built, nobody remembers. Mm -hmm. Okay. Yeah. Okay. That's exactly what we're talking about here is that all actions want with time. And the reason partially for that also is a way of thinking it is that we live in a very complex reality to where there's a lot of stuff going on, which means that if you do this and then this happens five years later, look at how much it was going on in between that time. Mm hmm. And there's many examples of magical thinking to where we see that this cause created this effect because this was a big deal at the time. And now this is a big deal at the time. And therefore, they're causally related. And I can give you several absurd examples of that that, that people have. But this is magical thinking. One of them is, is that uh, Hitler's Auschwitz uh, and the Holocaust was the contributing cause to the nation of Israel getting started. 
That was big deals when I was a little kid. That was a major, major issue. All right? Guess what? Too many causes and too many effects along the way. Another example that I've heard recently, I think Parker knows about this one, is, is that this guy gets struck by lightning and now he's a, a concert pianist uh, playing Chopin. And if there's a causal relation, because he got struck by lightning, now he can play <laughs> Chopin. The reality was is that because he got struck by lightning, he was in a coma for a long period of time. And while he was in that coma, his family played this same CD that had Chopin on it. Over and over and over again for months and months, all he heard was the same CD. When he came out of the coma, that's all he had on his mind. And so he wanted to get a piano, but he didn't have any motor skills. But he practiced because he had that dedication. And now with, with a very few years, because he's already got that music so strongly stuck right into his mind that he could actually play it. Now, was the lightning the cause of him becoming a pianist? No. No, but no. you can make that no. cause and effect relationship, but there was a whole lot of other stuff in between that made that there. So this is the whole idea then of why it's such a, re from physics point of view, that somebody had a past life. And one of the ones that kind of humorous is, is that 19, during the 1970s, big time past life stuff, people were really, really into it. About half the women that had past life experiences were all Cleopatra. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so. One wonders how many times Cleopatra has been reincarnated to the point that now she can do it a hundred times in the uh -huh. same time period. <laughs> well, the cause and effect is, is that the reality is, is that things that happened 2000 years ago for an individual have been lost in the time of all the cause effect happenings throughout the ages. So the 2000 years is too much happened in between. There may have been some setup and conditionings over a long period of time, but basically what the real teaching of the Buddha is, is that the biggest things that are happening right here, right now, are the things that just happened right here, right now, just a tenth of a second ago. Let's start paying attention to what's going on right now. Because all that past stuff is gone, it's dead, it's delusional, and it rots with time. And so that's how we want to look at the past is, is that it's not nearly the, the deeper the past it goes, the less effect it has on upon us right now. And what we do right now doesn't look like it's going to last for very long. It's just going to be right now. There's not much consequence to the way you spend your time. Though in our society, we've been taught that you should be productive. You should get stuff done. But when you recognize that that rots too, everything rots away. Mm -hmm. Everything rots very quickly according to the inverse square law. And because of that, there's no reason to get attached to the products of our efforts and labors. 
that's just more baggage that we carry. That's part of the stuff that we've got in the bag is, is that you're supposed to be productive. That's one of the rules that we carry around in our bag of goodies. In fact, that's the in interesting thing that instead of being on a beach picking up uh, shells, the reality is, is that we are victims picking up tips about how to manage the bullies in our life. And these tips we make as rules, authoritarian rules. And that's the way that it, that it goes. And so if we look at it like that, then there are a whole bag of tricks is nothing but a bunch of mental baggage. Mm -hmm. It wind up being nothing but tricks. And the value of it is very short lived. Which is another aspect then of sunyata, because the whole idea of existence is that existence ought to be existing enough, well enough, that it can be tested over and over and over and over again to prove that it exists. Well, if that's the case, then anything that does not have that enduring quality doesn't really have a self at all. It doesn't actually exist. Okay, and that so brings all, up a question. Yeah, I know it would, because <laughs> I'm actually <laughs> attacking science, am I not? <laughs> <laughs> Go ahead. Well, What's your question, Brandon? I was just curious to know um, what you think of the Mahayana two truths and, you know, what what I can learn about that. Um, the what? The two truths in Mahayana Buddhism, if you're two, two truths. Yeah. Are you familiar or? No, I know the them? three truths. The three truths are truth, justice and the American way. But I don't think that's it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Okay. Well, never mind. I mean, um, it's not a big deal then. Um, what are the two truths? Well, it it. And I've only seen this one place, so there could be a lot more to the story. But essentially what I saw uh, kind of aligned with what I experienced. And the two truths in a very rough outline, you start an existence, you, you learn about that, you get to a point where you reach cessation well you get you start an existence learn about that and then you reach a point where you're coming closer to proper discernment is basically what they say and then from doing that the idea is that you can reach cessation and then after having cessation they say that it's possible to discern what non-existence might be like not that it actually exists but as a concept kind of okay. against existence and then right. that that the basically the conclusion of that is after cessation once you come to what they proper discernment of that then you come to realize that where we actually are is closer to neither the existence that we thought things were like nor the non-existence we thought things could go to. And it's more kind of like 
neither existence nor non-existence in a really rough way of putting it. Um, well, especially in the sense that existence in that context is a concept. Yeah. But what you are saying in the beginning of what you started to say is true of everything. And an easy example is a verse out of uh, Paul when he says is that when I was a child, I played with childish things. But when I was no longer a child, I put away my childish things. All right. That's exactly what you're talking about here. And we do that on almost everything that we do something. We get enthusiastic. We go right into it. <laughs> Uh-huh. And then we get tired of it. Generally, we get tired of it because we are not up to the champion level. There's many cases to where the high school football star, when he gets to college, he gets disinterested in football because he's no longer the star of the team. Okay. So part of our disinterest is sour grapes. You know the story of in Aesop's fable. Yeah. Okay. So that um, we also get tired of our toys because we find new toys to play with. When is it going to come a time when we give up playing with toys and find that no toys at all is the best game in town? <laughs> yeah. When there's nothing to it. <laughs> So everything is a process like that. And like, I highly recommend travel. It's really, really good. But I don't recommend travel to an old traveler. I recommend the old traveler get the idea that he's already traveled. He's already (laughs) been there. He's done that. Why don't you sit down and take a rest? (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. And so there's that quality of been there, done that. So that, again, fits exactly what what you're in, that the traveler is playing with his toys. And he gets tired of playing with his toys and he puts them away and he settles down. And so when he thinks about, well, you know, I've been invited to a wedding in India and in Calcutta. And then the next <laughs> thought he's been there, done that. <laughs> <laughs> Or and the next thought is, is that, hey, I've got a stepdaughter that's moving um, uh, with, with her friend to Australia together, and they want Kitty to go down and go to, uh, uh, to school with them and live in Australia. And then I say, you know, we could all move down there. And then my answer to that is, well, Australia? Been there, done that, dinky die. <laughs> <laughs> Too right, mate. (laughs) (laughs) So been there, done that. Don't have to go. But that's the way that we live our whole lives. We do that also with spiritual toys. Spiritual materialism. Eventually we get tired of how many Buddha statues do I have in the house? How many old monks' bowls do we keep in the basement? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. So, um, that whole quality of been there, done that is, in a way, thinking of it as in a big deal because all of the stuff that I was really, truly interested in, including computers and music and psychology and Dhamma, Ultimately, 
It's all empty mm. when I stop thinking about it. When I'm not thinking about physics, physics is empty. The only time that, the, that there's anything to it is when I've got it in my mind. I'm carrying it around. And when I put it down, it doesn't exist. The same thing with music. When I'm on YouTube listening to music, there it is. It exists. But when I put it down, it's not there. It's gone. It doesn't exist. And when I'm in a fight with my mom, <laughs> the Dhamma is gone. It doesn't exist. <laughs> <laughs> So this and also the quality of sunyata is to begin to note the things that are not there. Because, in fact, a lot of the stuff that we think is there really is not there at all. It's in the past. Mm -hmm. And things are really not there at all. We think they're there, but they're really in the future. They don't they don't really exist. And so this is also the quality of sunyata is to recognize that this present moment really is all there is and everything else doesn't exist. Here's an example, you know, of San Paulo, Brazil. You know, you, you heard of the town, the city, there's a city there, San Paulo. Yes. Well, guess what? It's only for us just a concept. Not if the three of us have ever been there. Mm -hmm. We don't know anything about it. Well, that's easy enough to understand, but then we can start saying, well, I do know a whole lot about this other stuff because I've heard so much about it. An example of that would be rebirth. How many people have been to rebirth like San Paulo? Nobody here has been to San Paulo. We kind of know it exists, but so what? Now we hear about rebirth and we say, yeah, it must be just someplace, but so what? But you can see that that's not the attitude that a lot of people have. They say, rebirth, oh, I got to go, I got to go. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and so the rebirth that exists is a rebirth that they've got in their mind. It's something that they want. But the, it, really, and the reality is, is that for them, it's only a concept. They can't get a bus ticket and <laughs> go to rebirth, just uh -huh. like it's really hard to take a bus <laughs> to San Paulo. I guess we should so, fly to San Paulo, and that's, so, I guess, how they're going to get to rebirth, by flying there. <laughs> so here, here's another thing, like, kind of in that same vein, you know, if I look to the the front door to my left, and I remember that there used to be, you know, a sidewalk leaning, leading down to the street. And from that memory, I feel pretty confident that I could walk outside of that door and get to that same sidewalk and get to the street. I'm also still building that whole idea in my, my the future. What's here is this room that I'm in. Mm -hmm. So... Okay, here's a way of looking at it. And in fact, this is something that's out of one of the old books. I think this is Vasudhi Maga, but it does have some roots in it, back to the suttas. And that is, is that um, in, uh, even in Ch Thailand now, they will have not a crib for a, for a baby, but they will have, like we were talking before about um, a lungi or... Um, a sarong, 
you take the sarong out and you tie it in with an end and you make it into a hammock for an infant. Mm-hmm. So long as the infant is awake, mom's going to keep a direct eye. She's going to be swinging that that swing back and forth and back and forth to put the child to sleep. Once the child is asleep, now she can take her eye off of it and just let it kind of drip back and forth because all she has to do is to make sure that the child doesn't get up out of the blanket or out of the hammock. Okay, so this is what we're talking about here is the same thing, and that is, is that once we get something going, then we only have to check on it to make sure that it's there. Like when you open the door, you're going to check on that sidewalk. You expect (laughs) it to be there. But a lot of people will open the door and go right into the mud because somebody was out there digging up their sidewalk. (laughs) Yeah. Okay. Even though you expect to see what it's there, you don't got to take a look. You got to notice that that's, in fact, exactly how people get have automobile accidents in America is because they assume that it's going to be the way that they thought it was going to be instead of checking on what's actually happening in front of them. Right? So imagine that you came into the room and you sat out on the couch on the couch had been moved and you sat out on the floor with a hard thump. <laughs> Why? Because you didn't even bother to check that the couch was there again. You just sat down assuming that it was. Yeah. Okay. This is how we live our lives. We go around assuming that things are the way that they used to be without checking it out to see how things are right now. Bandner and Grinder talked about that in the sense of the map is not the territory. Your map of your room is not the territory of your room. This is exactly why people uh, lose car keys and objects and all kinds of things like that is because the room that they have, their map in their mind about where those car keys are is not the territory of, of the room of where those car keys are actually are. Okay, we live our whole lives that way, and this is why we have so much dukkha, is because we assume that the map is the territory. We assume that our Sankara is reality. This would be what would be called delusion, right? This is delusional thinking. Mm -hmm. It would be absolutely delusional for you to walk right into your house and sit right down on your couch that had been moved. (laughs) Yes. Sit down hard on the floor. The delusion is, now that might happen in the dark. You might, in fact, come into the room when it's pitch black, just assume the couch is there. If there's still shadows and whatnot, you just lay right down and you know, hard land on the floor because the couch is not there. Does that happen often in, med- in um, conversations that people have? That you, you sit down on somebody's mental couch that's not yeah. there? Yeah. <laughs> So, what's not there? That's sunyata. What's emptiness is the fact that the room now is empty of that uh, couch. You need to check that out rather than assuming that it's there. Mm -hmm. Right. We cannot assume that because we've investigated it 10,000 times and it proved to be correct, it is going to be correct again. No, things change. 
We have to keep checking it out in the present moment yet again. If you've ever worked with electronics and stuff like that, there's a whole lot of stuff that engineers get to do. Like one of the things that they do is they keep touching the metal object. They keep touching the metal object. Yes, there's static electricity out there. And just because I touched the metal object this morning doesn't mean now I'm free from static electricity, which means if I pick up a chip, I may blow that chip with my own static electricity in my fingers. So I better keep touching that the case, keep mm -hmm. touching it. Often, you don't have to have your hand right on the case all the time, but you need to touch it from time to time. That's an example. I mean, keep checking it out. Keep checking to make sure before you sit on the couch that the couch is actually there. This is a major teaching of Sunyata because there is, in fact, no soul of a couch. The couch, just because it was there, doesn't mean it's going to continue to be there. This is the whole concept of a self. Is mm -hmm. that it's everlasting, it's ongoing. That the child that I was at the age of three is the same child that I am, uh, the same person that I am now. And that's not at all the same thing. You may have a few memories of what it was like when you were three or four or five or eight or 10. You may have a few memories, but that's all you've got left. It's just a few memories. You can't go back to the house that you lived in when you were three years old and, and go back to that address and find the same house. It's going to be completely different. The termites might have come. The painters might have come. All kinds of concessions uh, and changes. Maybe even the freight train might have come. We don't know what has happened, but we do know that 20 years is a long time for a piece of property. It's not going to stay the same. Everything is changing, everything in time. But sometimes people will visit a childhood residence and they don't even recognize the town anymore. It's just it's, this, the town I remember in this town, it's just not the same place. <laughs> Yeah. So this is the quality of uh, a Nietzsche and Anatta, that that's just the nature of things, that in fact, anything that can be compounded can be uncompounded, and anything that either is compounded or not compounded, neither case does is there an existing self or a soul there. It literally depends upon conditions. There's many, many situations to where temperature is one of the conditionalities in the sense is that if it's cold enough, you've got ice. If it's right temperature, you've got water. If it's too hot, you've got steam. If it's even hotter than that, you've got plasma. And what plasma is, and they're in fact, they're figuring out there's exactly another state of, of heat above that. And that is where the unified field theory begins to play in, where the uh, the weak nuclear force that keeps the electrons going in the circle and the electromagnetic force are the same when the temperature gets high enough. I forgot how many, I think it's like 10 to the 43rd or something, 10 to the minus, you know, 10 to the 43rd Kelvin or something like that, way up there. But the point is, is that, yes, but we're talking about a very, very minuscule, tiny, tiny, tiny little place. So it can get that hot. If it's small enough, it can get that hot. The smaller it is and the more energy that's packed into it, the hotter it is. And in that regard, that means that, yes, we can find a unified field theory if we think small enough rather than big for temperature. 
But the whole point that we're making here is that there is no self within any of it. Everything transmutes and goes from this to that. Even energy and matter goes back and forth. That happens all the time. But the cells of your body die. There's not one cell in your body that was there seven or eight years ago. There's not one molecule, not one ounce of water, not even one molecule of water that was there when you were peeing at the age of five. No, all of that water is gone. <laughs> New water has come in, and that's been gone, so, too. There's so, nothing so what left. About, <laughs> so what about something like absolute zero? Does that Nobody's change? got any absolutes in zero. That's the whole point. Is no, there is no place in the universe is absolute zero. We still have at least cosmic radiation. We also have expansion of space and all kinds of other things going on. In fact, the average temperature of deep outer space is three degrees Kelvin. Now that's hot. I want. I want a fan. <laughs> I'm, I'm joking, of course. Three degrees Kelvin is not absolute zero. There's no such thing as absolute zero, just like there's no such thing as infinity. Everything is relative. Nothing is mm -hmm. absolute. And if we call something absolute, it might be like our couch, and we'll get pulled out right from under us. Right, exactly. That absoluteness is your couch again. Yes. Absolute's going to get pulled right out from under you now, every time you think something is absolute. Nothing is absolute. Now, Everything now how is relative. Are, so, so how are no self and impermanence not absolute then? Well, we don't even know that. We just see that there it is. Keep it's checking. Just keep investigating. It's yes. just our best <laughs> guess. Is it just our best guess? Is that what we're going on? <laughs> It just looks like no, it keeps going. No. Actually, if there's any any point in all of this, it can be boiled down to this point, and that is mind over matter. If you don't mind, it don't matter. <laughs> That's the whole teaching of the Buddha right there. Mind is over matter. What you see, your delusional world that you live in is more important to you than what reality is. But if you can control your mind to the point that it doesn't matter. <laughs> doesn't matter that you're out of control. That reality does matter and that's all it is and we can get used to that. Mm -hmm. Rather than trying to control it. So again, there's also that uh, regard in the sense that we are in fact powerless. That we really don't have any control. In other words, I cannot fix society. I cannot fix the Republican Party. I cannot even fix Tesla. I can't fix General Motors. I can't fix religion. I can't fix your mind. Mm -hmm. I can't even fix my mind because it's not broken. So therefore, I should leave all that stuff alone. Stop trying to fix stuff that's not broken. <laughs> what's broken is my idea that things are broken. That's what's broken. <laughs>
So in that regard, we can say that everything really is empty of problems. There are no problems. Everything is empty of self. There is no self. Everything is empty of meaning. There is no meaning to anything. Everything is empty of purpose. There's no purpose. Life is a dance. It's not a march. We're not off to go to war. We're out and dance. <laughs> We're having fun. There's, there's no meaning to it. There's no purpose. Life is a ball. Life is a dance. It's empty of meaning. It's empty of value. It doesn't mean anything. It has no value. It has no price. It's priceless. So live your life as if it were priceless because it's got no meaning. <laughs> and yet we do think that my life does have a price. It does have meaning. I'm, I'm worth $20 an hour now. <laughs> <laughs> oh. And it's not because of inflation. It's because I'm that much better at 75. <laughs> <laughs> So we've been dancing quite a long around about this issue of emptiness. Everything then winds up being empty when we see that it's empty of a self, empty of a purpose, empty of being perfect, empty of being absolute, empty of being a self, empty of being uh, important, empty of meaning. And so we should start looking for this emptiness within everything. Because when you when there is meaning in something, that's because you've added it to it with your own mind. The inherent reality is just reality. Mm -hmm. And it's fine what it is. The only problem with it is that there are seven billion of us out there trying to make meaning out of it. <laughs> Others are trying to make their life meaningful. <laughs> and those are golden chains, right? Well, these are actually activities that people want as part of the desire. When you recognize that your desire is meaningless, other than it keeps us doing stuff that we don't need to do. <laughs> that we're looking for meaning. We're looking for purpose. And you see, uh, it would be much easier if all we had in mind was survival. Just really just survival. What's your basic level? What's your bottom line? Just enough clothing, just enough food, just enough shelter, just enough medication, just enough friendship, just enough dhamma. Just enough couch to sit on. That's all we need, just enough. But we're taught to get more and more and more and more. To get more comfortable. Oh, just, mm -hmm. just enough couch is not enough. That's uncomfortable. I want to get really comfortable. I need a bigger couch. And then it's just a faster and bigger hedonic treadmill. 
Right. And when that treadmill gets really, really popular, when they're mass producing it by the billions, that means that that's our society. We are a society on a treadmill. And you could say, in fact, that the dial in front of that treadmill is the gross national product or something on Wall Street or something. And people are looking at that and they're just drilling harder and harder and harder to get those numbers higher and higher and higher. <laughs> when if they would step off the treadmill and stop looking at those numbers, those numbers don't exist. Mm -hmm. Well, Lao Tzu said, you know, the water lights the low places. Kind of like the Dow, right? Mm hmm. And it's a whole what lot easier to go with gravity than to try to always be going higher. <laughs> well, it, it depends upon your level of baggage. Yeah, because if you got a lot of baggage, it's not easier to just let it all go. <laughs> 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 That's the hardest right. thing ever. <laughs> Yeah, first I'm swimming around chasing it. Out of the water, I can't really keep my baggage out of the swamp. <laughs> my baggage is treasure. <laughs> so we all say. But yeah, we we don't we don't have to go to the lowest common denominator. That this is what right effort is all about. That in fact that we can climb out of our own sewer. We can climb out of the low poison. That you can do that. And the easy way is to just drop your baggage because you're already light. You're enlightened. That's what the whole quality of enlightenment means. Otherwise, the word enlightenment is nothing but a war between the Catholics and the Protestants that lasted 100 years, had the French Revolution, the age of science and awakening and all of that. That's enlightenment. Why they use that word for Buddhism, I'm not sure, but you got it, so let's pack it right in and recognize, <laughs> yes, enlightenment is when you wake up to what you're carrying and then put that stuff down. So light in the sense of daylight, the light of mm -hmm. day, shining a light on it, taking a look. And when you recognize it we, as baggage, as just another bag of sand, we can say, out you go. And now we're lighter. When it's not heavy. And so this is the real enlightenment is knowledge and deliverance. Is to let go of the baggage. And the only time that we can let go of the baggage is right now when we see the baggage in front of us or. Weighing us down. Mm -hmm. But in the West, they say, oh, well, I can't let go of the baggage now because I'll just pick it up later. Or drop it, he's not drop enlightened. It huh? Uh, right, that's the whole point. Just drop of it good, then. Yeah, yes. never, never mind, drop it again. Exactly, <laughs> exactly. You can only drop it now. And a lot of people don't want to drop it now because they want to pick it up later. Because we see things as permanent, as if the, the, uh, the act of dropping it has itself to it, rather than it's just merely another act. And we think we can drop it all the time. Or the couch is going to be there all the time. We're going to be mindful all the time. Well, no, it's only when you remember. Or right now. Not all, but 
it depends. Well, I mean, only I'm, one time use the word all it. the time when we actually mean intermittent. I understand that. Go ahead. What do you say, uh, uh, Brandon? Oh, I just said there's only one time to drop it, though. Yes. Yes. Exactly. Now is the time. And so all things, you're right, in fact, uh, Parker, all things do happen in the now. When can things happen in the past? Things don't happen in the past. Things happened in the past, but when they did happen, it was now, then. <laughs> so you're right, All everything mm -hmm. happens right now. Because that's the only possible time for anything to happen is in the now. So the dropping has to be done now. When it, When is the now? Whenever we wake up to being in the now. And one of the ways that we can think of this practice is how often can you remember to pay attention to what your body's doing and where you are and coming into the here now? Like once a minute, you just wake up and say, here I am. Maybe a minute later, you say, yeah, I can feel the, 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 the breeze on the, the arm. And that helps me to wake up and to be in the here now. <laughs> you see, most in the West, they can spend days sometimes, hours and hours, being in the past to the future, planning, thinking about something. We use terms like, I've got something on my mind, and they literally do. They carry it around and around and around and around, uh, one thought moment after another. Which, which gives the idea, this is something that we've seen recently, that a cup like this, what does it weigh? It weighs about four or five ounces, maybe seven ounces, something like that. Not very heavy until I hold it. Yes. For one minute, two minutes, it's going to get heavy. How about three minutes, five minutes? Now my arm's going to start to hurt. And I'm determined that I'm going to hold that coffee cup up. And by doing so, for an hour, maybe a day, how about I don't sleep? Because if I go to sleep, I'll have to put the cup down. I'm going to hold this cup up, so I'm going to have to stay up all night, all day, one hour, two hours, five days. <laughs> how long can I hold the cup uh -huh. up? The answer is not long. I can have the intention to hold it up, but I'll drop it. Why is that? Because the arm will hurt. The arm itself says, enough is enough. <laughs> well, guess what? If we think about something like holding the same thought over and over again, like holding the same coffee cup up over and over and over again for an hour or two hours, doesn't you think that our mind gets tired, gets exhausted? We get Your, your emotions with... react and they're, get, drop this shit, <laughs> you know? <laughs> Exactly. So this is why sati is good, is to remember to put the cup down. The cup is empty. Why are we holding the cup when we can set it down and relax? Why should we take, keep those thoughts in the mind that are so heavy, like a coffee cup? We can set them down, too. And some of the thoughts are a whole lot more heavy than a coffee cup. Some of them are downright <laughs> heavy, heavy thoughts. And so it's better to put those heavy thoughts down. Walking along the beach, we're trying to figure out that that bag is just so heavy. We need to set this stuff down. Well, it doesn't really exist like that. That's more of a permanent way of looking at it. 
But better, better still is, is that while we're just walking along, we just keep looking not at the ground to see what shells there are in to put in the bag. We're looking in the bag to see what those the shells that come up right now that we can throw out. Oh, I don't need that one. Out it goes. Then I find another shell just like that one. Oh, don't need it again. Out it goes. <laughs> And so we go around just kind of keeping the bag empty in the moment that whatever comes up, out it goes, you don't need that. And so we emptied the bag. Why? Because the thought was empty. Why was it empty? Because it didn't mean anything. It wasn't important. So in that regard, that's why we say that emptiness means it's empty of a self is empty of importance, is empty of meaning, is empty of purpose, is empty of a job to do, it's empty of results. Now, a lot of people will say, oh, I can't stand that. But really, that's just an initial reaction. It's actually quite liberating information to recognize, look, we don't have to carry all of that stuff down. Uh -huh. We don't have to carry things if they don't mean anything. And so if I can see through it and recognize that it does not have any meaning, I can see the emptiness in that gesture. Then I can put it down. Or maybe I shouldn't say put it down, better say set it down. Put it down sounds like we've been to the vet. <laughs> <laughs> but we just drop it, just set it aside. And that setting it aside, dropping it, putting it down, in the poly, we could use a very formal word of relinquishing it. Or atamayata, which means not going to have anything to do with it. No work mm. to do. Well, we've been talking for an hour about emptiness. I hope that we're pretty empty of it now. <laughs> yeah, I... I have, uh, Parker, do you have any questions that came up? I, I guess I'm, I'm a, I've got more coming, so <laughs> I just want to give you your turn. Um, when we're looking at the words, I um, hear them often, the um, uh, greed, ill will, and delusion. Um, there was some investigation recently relating to that. Um, and so I was curious as to if the um, the definitions that were came to are somewhat accurate, um, specifically greed and aversion being, um, I guess, aversion. Um, anytime there is um, disliking of something um, that. Uh, um disliking of like any experience we try to change the whatever sensual experience um and the aversion then would be the the not the not liking but the wanting to change something because we don't like it um mm -hmm. and then greed being um seeing something that we like and then the greed would be the wanting of that thing that we like um And then, um, yes, would delusion be the same with a, I guess, what is called like the neutral or confused feeling? 
or uh, has that fit in even, with that even pattern? Though, even though the translation has to do with neutral theming, um, that's actually uh, the wrong way of looking at it because a really truly neutral feeling is no feeling at all. Things, there's a lot of happens that don't have no impact upon us. And if they don't impact us, then we don't have any feelings arise. Yes. <clears throat> no, we're talking about something that really impacts us, but that it's neither uh, or is both a good and bad reaction. Sort of like uh, every cloud has a silver lining, and sometimes we get impacted with both the silver lining and the cloud <clears throat> at the same time. Is that and so we become confused, or also we can say that we have a, only partial information so that we can't really tell what it is. An example of that is you can see someone at distance coming, but you don't know who it is or whether they're in a uniform or whether it's even male or female. All we know is someone is coming, so we get curious as to who or what it is, right? Why do we get mm -hmm. curious? It's just a piece of information. We don't really need it, but we get confused. Why? Because we want to know, is this person coming going to do something good or are they going to do something bad? Mm -hmm. Is this a cop coming to arrest me or is this a, um, uh, a car dealer coming to uh, deliver a new car for me? You know. That's the yes. whole point, which we don't know what it so, is. So, so is the is the delusion kind of the the feeling that with that limited information, somehow trying to figure it out where you, when you don't know, you have no way of really knowing what it is. You're still trying to prepare for that situation off of such limited information that the preparation is never going to work. And, and and if it does work, you're just lucky. And if it doesn't work, you know, you were just unlucky. Is that kind of how it works? Or? Yes, exactly. And we do that on a regular basis. That we get partial information and we fill in the gaps. And sometimes we fill in the gaps accurately. And sometimes we fill in the gaps inaccurately. And sometimes we fill in the gaps inaccurately, but we still think that we fill them in accurately and we get attached to our views of things. This happens on a regular, frequent basis. Okay, that's the delusional thinking, is thinking that I know something to be a fact when in fact is not a fact. That mm -hmm. I saw red and green, and I assumed that if I put them together, I'll get brown. And I get yellow instead. Okay? That's an example, is that we think something is going to happen and something else happens. Mm -hmm. So, um, is, so the, uh, the aversion and greed then can be classified as kinds of wanting? Is that the same with delusion? They're, they're both. All three of them have a quality of wanting. That's the tanha. All three of yes. them give rise to wanting. Okay. The delusion is that uh, that because this feeling arose, that I should want it, or want to get rid of it, or want to find out what it is. So basically, we can say I like it, I don't like it, or I'm confused. I don't know whether I like it or not. 
-hmm. Or we could say I'm confused because I both like it and don't like it. All right, but this yes. is not the same as a cost-benefit analysis. This is a feeling, an mm -hmm. instantaneous feeling. A cost-benefit analysis comes up with an actual result based upon inspection and investigation. But confusion is different than that. Now, we can actually take confusion as a lemon and turn it into lemonade by changing it from confusion into curiosity. Mm -hmm. Curiosity, in fact, is an, is an active ingredient that you can also think that curiosity is the feeling of the winner and confusion over the same issue is the feeling of the loser. Oh, I don't know what it is. Oh, poor me, it might attack us. We got to get ready for battle. But the, mm -hmm. your curiosity is, is, wow, I don't know who he is. Let's go find out what he's got. And in both cases, um, one is, well, actually, they're not the same, but it's possible that we can uh, not do the investigation. In fact, we can see something and that confusion in some cases can turn to delight. Um, and we don't see the dangers that, in fact, this is very common. So the, the Buddha says we need to do a further investigation just because something looks delightful. Uh, yes. Or are curious doesn't mean that it's wholesome for us, that we need to really look and do an investigation. This is, in fact, why yeah. the Kalama Sutta is this is just another um, example of the Kalama Sutta is don't take things be, um, uh, because of hearsay or because it's in a book, or because some scientist wrote a newspaper, or because you saw it on the internet, or because uh, uh, it's all over town, or because your spiritual teacher told you, or because the Buddha said it, or anything like that. Nor do we take it because it agrees with what we already like, confirmation bias. That we really do have to investigate something, for sure. And when we investigate it for sure, then we'll know. But we need the next time. Can't rely upon the time this time that I know it. No, I need to investigate it yet again next time to make sure that it's still the same because things change. And so I'll investigate it again. And over and over and over and over again, it still comes up the same way, but we still investigate it. It keeps coming up the same way. We begin to build confidence. Point after point after point after point after point after point. Mm -hmm. We can begin to see the point to that. But we still keep investigating. But we can take joy in the fact that I can see the sequence as it goes. I bet that's just going to happen again. I'm going to be watching for the next time that it occurs. This is the be there, done that, right? Mm -hmm. The been there, I've, done I've that quality of it. Yeah, I've been there, done that. And so, yeah, Joy, I know what that's all about. <laughs> been there, done that. So, um, an example of it was is that once Robert uh, gave a quote and said that when he heard that quote, it really profounded him. It really impacted him profoundly. And the reason for it was is because it was just another dot 
on the line that proved the trajectory that he had seen this, 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 this. And then when he saw that, it said, bango, it's almost like the, uh, the, the little period at the bottom of an exclamation point. Yes. And then he says, well, I want to give that quote that I just read to my dad. And I said, well, wait a minute. You have had this sequence of events going on and on and on. You've been able to see that and make that connection. So that piece of that new way of looking at the same thing impacted you strongly. And your dad doesn't have that history. So he may not get out of it. He may, in fact, have that as a foundation for here and there. And then something that sounds really mundane to you, he gets a really big bang out of it. Because yes. it really begins to fit things together so that he can see the sequence of events of the way that we do this based upon the fact that we keep investigating and we keep investigating and we keep seeing the same thing over and over and over again. Mm -hmm. So now we're not saying that I know this because I've heard it before. Now we know it because we've seen it and we've seen it over and over again that we're actually able to reproduce this experiment. But we keep performing the experiment just to make sure that we can keep doing it. Here's an example of that. Um, right around the end of World War One, Einstein was desperate to get some photos done by uh, some uh, photographers with telescopes to get the picture of a, um, a solar eclipse so that he could prove that the light bent around the sun so that stars would change their positions. You know about that? The theory of relativity was proven by using a, um, uh, um, a solar eclipse. Well, guess mm. what? Every yes. time a solar eclipse happens now, if you've got a scientist anywhere near here, he's going to go set up his equipment <laughs> to prove that again, to make sure yet once again that, that light is bent by gravity. <laughs> because mm -hmm. those stars change position and they're not behind the sun where they should be. They're beside the sun because the uh, the trajectory had changed. So that's an example of so. And every time that the scientist goes out into the field and sets up his equipment and takes that shot and, and does the math and proves again that that Einstein was right, they always have that uh, dopamine hit, that great big adrenaline rush. That, yeah, I proved it again. It happened again. I can see it again, over and over and over again. I can see this pattern. Okay, so this is how we want to actually practice Anapanasati, that same thing that over and over and over again, we want to be able to yank that thought out of the mind and put some gladness back into the mind and uh, go back into a state of emptiness because the thing that we're going to throw out of the mind was whatever we thought was important at the time. But it's meaningless. It's empty. It's not important at all. I don't have to think about it right now. I can think of something that I want to think about instead of something that I have to think about because it's heavy. It's mm -hmm. important. It's got meaning to it. If I don't do it, I'll, if it doesn't happen, I'll not like it and I'll feel bad. So that's the heavy. No, we can recognize, no, you can feel good right now. It doesn't matter what they're not doing. That's empty. You could choose what's empty. So they talk about emptying the mind out. What that really means is just stop having unwholesome thoughts. Mm -hmm. That's what Bhikkhu Buddha Dasa talks about, the void mind. That we yes. all have a void mind on a regular basis. 
but just not very often. So the idea is to have mind that is devoid of unwholesome thoughts and have wholesome thoughts, which means that now the mind is empty of heaviness, is empty of substance. We have insubstantial thoughts, and the thoughts just float on by. They don't mean anything. They were just thoughts all along. And here we are in our culture being taught that our thoughts are important. What do you think, Jimmy? <laughs> you know, and they're Jimmy. I, I think that I don't have to think right now. <laughs> I don't. Uh-huh. Right, so we're taught in our society that things have meaning. Things have weight. They have thoughts that, you know, uh, what we think is who we are. And that's not true. Who you, what you think and who you are are not the same thing. Everything is empty. Even our thoughts don't mean anything. Really, really lightweight. Easy to put down, put away. Don't need it. Not important. So, in a way, really what we're talking about is emptiness or sunyata is an attitude. Rather than a fact, mm-hmm. it's just an attitude. The attitude, nothing really matters. Mind over matter. If you don't mind, it don't matter. <laughs> <laughs> so, Brandon, what do you think? <laughs> oh, is that I, an important I, thought I, here? I've been uh, paying attention to some odd perceptual shifts going on. Uh, that was fun, but I mean, uh, yeah, we were. It tracks a lot with with where we were at earlier. Yeah, just. It's here right now, and there's no big need to put meaning on it or purpose unless mm-hmm. unless that feels like a fun thing to do. <laughs> right. <clears throat> it's not magical and it's not spooky. It's just the reality of the situation. The reality is, is that nothing really matters until you make it matter. That that seashell could bid on that shore for a million years, and it didn't matter until a little boy walks by and picks it up and likes it, and now that shell matters. Until the boy puts the shell back down on the beach, and then it don't matter. (laughs) So that's the way of looking at Sunyata. Nothing matters. Nothing is important. But it also has the quality of beginning to look and investigate for the things that are there and what's not there. To let your mind be void in the sense of you know that unwholesome thoughts are not there. The things that are heavy are not there. That right now you're light. Everything is easy. So in this regard, Sunyata, wow, what a blessing. It's not a terror (laughs) at all. It's freedom itself. (laughs) In fact, there's a line from a song that's quite useful here, and that is the line in the song is freedom is just another word 
for nothing left to lose. Because I've lost all of the important stuff, there's nothing left. And so that's freedom. Because nothing's important anymore. So was there anything else you wanted to ask? I had a, a question about the jhanas in mind, unless you you had anything else. Nothing much, no. Okay. Okay, uh, here's the answer to the jhanas, is, is that the jhanas are nothing more than dumping one thing after another, after another, until there's nothing left. Okay. Most specifically, the jhanas are going from one state of relaxation to another state of relaxation because you've dumped a load, and then another state of relaxation because you've dumped a load, and then another state of relaxation until you dumped a load, until you get down to where there's almost nothing left because you can't find anything left. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, that, Once you that understand makes... that, then we can go look at those individual items because what gives us the first jhana is dumping almost the entire load of hindrances so that we have only one wholesome thought after another. We can apply and sustain that. But once we have the mind completely free from unwholesome thoughts, we can begin to put some gaps between the wholesome thoughts. In the gaps between the wholesome thoughts is where the mind moments are spent not having dialogue or thoughts that form, but they have thoughts of the feelings. In other words, we really experience how good we feel. And we feel so good that we can't even find words for it. And so we stop finding words and we just feel really, really good for a while. That's the second jhana. Once we're feeling, and it feels exhilarating. I mean, it's just all over the place. I won't give a full lecture on it, but it's really, really nice. It's, it's uh, so nice that it's too nice for words. But it's also kind of, because it's exhilarating, it also has a busyness to the niceness. And so when we let the busyness go out of the niceness, when it's no longer exhilarating, it's no longer such a, uh, an important point of being uh, successful, but rather just kind of being satisfied. That's the third jhana, is when the, the pity melts into just sukha. And then in the fourth jhana, the sukha melts into uh, upeka. Now down at that what point, is that level, that's for the, Sorry, I... upeka, actually, there's no translation for it in the, uh, the translations are, are really, really terrible. <laughs> and not only that, but, but upeka has more than one meaning and more than one use. So that's all the more complicated. But here we're talking about upeka is um, really emptiness or, or complete balance. But what is balance but emptiness of forces pushing on it? That's what balance is, is when there's nothing pushing anymore. There's nothing there. So things go, in other words, uh, going back to the rock that's getting thrown into the pond, that, that, uh, um, that rocks the boat that's close to the, uh, to the big boulder that fell in, that's going to rock the little boat. But the further away the boat is, well, if the boat's further enough away from that stone that fell, if it's, it's completely away from it, then that's as if the boat has no rock. 
That's the opaca. The opaca is when whatever stones that fall are so far away from us that they don't rock our boat. Okay. Okay. That in that in this sense, what we're saying is, is that even uh, bliss of the second jhana is boat rocking. Okay, because it feels so good. So that's the whole progression then of the um, <clears throat> of the jhanas. But the progression of the jhanas uh, is actually a progression of how fast we are at seeing how the mind operates, because we're getting very very stable, we're getting very relaxed, and we're also removing obstacles to see what things are. So in the beginning, the obstacles is thinking itself. But before that, to get into wholesome thinking, we have to get free of the obstacles of unwholesome thoughts. So we really do corral the mind and get it into a small place of only a few wholesome thoughts. Then we get it to where now we're doing no thoughts, no thinking kind of thoughts, but rather just feeling kind of thoughts, experiential kind of thoughts, really in the here and out of how good it feels, how bright the colors are, how marvelous the sounds are, how good the rain sounds, how always oh, <laughs> <laughs> too good for words is the second jhana. And, but as, and you, but you, as can't be in, you can't be in the jhanas outside of meditation, is that correct? Well, that's how they found them was outside of meditation. Yeah. Jhanas are just meditation is just a particular way of doing the jhanas. Okay. Okay. Skydivers do skydiving to get into jhana states. Why? Well, what are you going to go skydiving and not enjoy the experience of weightlessness and falling and get all <laughs> good and good inside? I mean, what's the point if you jump out of the plane, pull your parachute, and think about the fight you had with grandma all the way to the ground? <laughs> what's the point of having that skydive <laughs> and you miss the whole experience of it? So, what I'm saying is go skydiving without the parachute and the airplane. <laughs> <laughs> And just sit there and go skydiving, just experiencing exhilaration of how marvelous it feels. Or the thrill of motorcycles going at 100 clicks or 100 miles an hour. It's exhilarating. You've got to pay attention. You've got to watch what you're doing. If you don't watch what you're doing, you're dead meat. <laughs> That's what racing is all about. It puts you in the here now. That's the same thing with martial arts. If you don't watch what you're doing, if you start thinking about the fight you had with this guy, he's going to bust you in the chops before you have the next thought. You've got to be here now. You've got to be on top of your game. So sports, all kinds of sports. Musicians have to really pay attention to what they're doing. They have to and be then, in the here now. That's one of the reasons why musicians really love music. It's not actually the music. It's the fact that they can pay attention to it. That's what makes it so nice. Is there in it? Yeah. So, so what about the uh, formless realms or, you know, what some people call the fifth through eighth? Yeah, or okay, but jump. don't make it magical. Make it mental. Make the it mental, but realms. not magical. Yes, make it mental, not magical. Okay. 
That's what the formless realms are, the stuff that you're forming formlessly in your own mind. Or another way of saying it is, is that at the realm of, of perception, you don't take the rupa on the outside and bring it in and form it into a rupa on the inside of your mind. So we're talking about at the level of perception or another way of seeing or saying it is, is that let the scene be merely the scene. Mm -hmm. Let the herd be merely the herd. Let the uh, uh, the cognized uh, merely the cognized. And when I'm talking about cognized here, I'm not talking about uh, uh, Ralston thought. I'm talking about the experience of something that you cognize it, for instance. Um, when someone says I'm angry, they have cognized anger. They spent mind moments looking at the anger. The, um, maybe the next maybe the next mind moment is you should not be angry. <laughs> the, the like or image flashing, like uh, memory would be um, what the cognite is, right? Just letting it be rather than telling a story about that image. Instead of telling a story about the image, that's the perception. We perceive it. We're making sense out of it. We want to understand things. And so at the level of the fourth jhana is when the mind is sharp enough. See, at the first jhana, we're beginning. We're not just beginning. We are controlling our feelings. We are controlling our thoughts. We are controlling the salayatana in order to get the, the, the hits. But at the beginning, we start at the feelings themselves for the first jhana. Then in the second genre, we really get strongly into the feelings and let the thoughts go. As we go down, then we begin to see how we create things in the mind. That's the Salayatana. Then we begin to see the creation process. That's the Nama Rupa or perception. Perceiving actually means the process of seeing something on the inside. So, so perception is the key point for the fourth jhana, is to really understand the connection between the sense consciousness and the perceiving. And if we're able to see with sense consciousness without making sense out of it, then the scene is merely the scene. It's just shapes, forms, what the eye can see, movements, without trying to make sense out of it. Because the way to make sense out of it is by perceiving it using all of our old stored baggage. So we're talking about here, the scene is merely the scene, the herd is merely the herd, the cognized is merely the cognized, the sensed is merely the sense, the touch is merely the touch. And when you're actually paying attention to the touch, you're in fortune right then. For a mind moment, two minds moments. Why? Because all the factors for the support genre are there. But you don't have the skills to maintain it because you haven't built the skill of maintaining the first genre. Once you've maintained the skill of sustaining and maintaining the first genre, that ability to sustain allows one to go into the higher genres, not just a moment or two or half a second or so, but we can actually stay in that state and sustain it and maintain it. So most all the skills that you need are the skills of, of first jhana. If you can get in and really become expert at fourth jhana, uh, first jhana, you're already skilled in the other jhanas. 
So something I've heard is that you can experience the formless realms or jhanas uh, like with eyes open, for example, can you describe like what your thoughts are on that or like how that process works or, you know, how you could tell such a thing is happening? Um, with the fourth jhana, even though we're seeing, we're not sensing. One of the suttas is the Baghdadi Sutta. Uh, it's in the uh, uh, Udana, it's in the ones where this old, um, he was a rishi, uh, uh, Rusi in the Thai language, um, a, a, a bark wearer. Uh, now, it's not the kind of bark that you get off an oak tree or a pine tree, but rather it's like birch bark that they have very, very thin strips of, of, the, of the bark that they weave into cloth. So it's really, really rough, but it's not <laughs> really super ugly. Uh, so he was a bark wearer, and um, uh, he decided to go to the Buddha to ask this, and he pestered the Buddha, so the Buddha gave him the correct answer, because this guy had already been out doing what he was doing, and the Buddha knew this about him. But the afternoon after he pestered the Buddha and got this information, he wound up dead. He got killed by a cow. And the and the point here was is that this guy should have been practicing that stuff way off in a safe place. You get yourself secluded. You just don't go walking down the street in the state of uh, only sensory awareness because you can see that car coming and you just let it plow right into you because you don't care. You don't see the danger. You're not caring about it. I know personally I've had that. I remember one night, uh, I won't give the circumstances, but basically coming out of the wad in Fremont, California to go to the Kuti uh, where I was staying, we passed a major highway, crossed the highway. It's late at night, I'm just crossing the highway. And this guy was coming down the road, I must have been 100 miles an hour, just barreling down through there. And I figured that he'd look out for me. And I didn't care about him. That guy hit me, or didn't hit me, but he came so close that it actually disturbed, the wind disturbed the robes. You could feel the, I mean, <laughs> that was that close. <clears throat> because I just didn't care. I didn't think about it, didn't worry about it, wasn't concerned about it. In other words, I saw it with the eye, but it didn't register. It didn't, I didn't perceive danger because I didn't perceive danger. I was in the wrong place to be in that state of mind. <laughs> so walking around in Fort John is absolutely dangerous. We do need to perceive danger. That that um, self-preservation instinct is useful in real situations. The problem is, is it is not useful when we don't need it. But we all have uh, many false positives. And what is a false positive? I think danger. I feel danger. That's a false positive. I see danger. And I don't uh, respond to it as danger. That's a false negative. The real way is, is that if I see danger on the outside, I respond with danger. But if I see danger in the mind, I throw that out. And I don't experience danger. Mm -hmm. So we can have false positive and false negatives. And our life is full of that. But when we start having positive positives and negative negatives, whoopee, now we're free. <laughs>
Does so, that make any sense for you about this when the scene is merely the scene without it being perceived? Yeah, yeah, I think it does. Um, so is it possible then, like, to have a conversation with someone, for example, like in the fourth jhana, if you sustained no. it? And, no, it's no. not possible. Okay. No. Not only that, but years and years ago on one of the uh, Buddhist Yahoo groups or something like that, they were talking about a, a conversation between a teacher and a student. They were talking about Jhana while the guy who was driving the car was uh, talking about that he was going in and out of these Jhana states. And my response to that is, is that, hey, if I was a cop, I would have arrested that guy for driving under the influence <laughs> of Jhana. <laughs> you do yeah. not drive a car when you're going through the Jhana states, because if you're in the fourth Jhana, you can see that Mack trunk coming right into you. You don't care. <laughs> You're not at that level of perception. You don't see the dangers in it. It's stupid to be out on the highway when you're in Fort Jhana. And staying in Fort Jhana. Rather than coming out of it long enough to perceive the danger. So there's no way that an automatic process like of the personality could occur while in the fourth Jhana state? It depends upon your capability of sustaining it. This is a skill to be developed. Your ability okay, that, to that was mainly what I, what I was asking. Not not like, was I asking like, is it a smart idea to do it like while driving or something? More just like, <laughs> more basically like how how much can the jhanas you know be said to come in or or not come in to regular situations? Because like, I've been having a lot of experiences where they feel to be at least from the descriptions I've heard and the understanding that I have they feel to be kind of fusing with uh, certain regular life situations at times. Um, so that was kind here's of where the way, question came from. Here's a way of, of uh, describing it. This is also just a concept like all of the other concepts. But one of the, con one, one of the ways of conceptually understanding it is, is that once you have the first jhana, skillfully developed so that you could go into the first jhana easily. You can sustain the first jhana for long periods of time. Then the third skill would be to come out of the first jhana, not back into ordinary life because you wouldn't want to do that anyway. But when you go back into the ordinary mind, that means that hindrances are back. That's not a skill. The skill of coming out of the first jhana is the skill of coming out of all thoughts. So there is a line between the first and the second jhana, or you can say the path of the second jhana is to put gaps in the thoughts so that there's no more uh, wholesome thoughts. They're just the experience of what you've talked yourself into feeling. So you're capable of doing that. Okay, so this is the point then where the, the kind of salyatana that we're creating is now no longer thought oriented it's merely experientially oriented so we feel our way from the salayatana or the internal representation we feel our way back into uh, perception from there in other words we stop looking at what we're perceiving and start looking at the process of perceiving itself okay 
and that's like a you said that's second jhana process is looking at the perceiving. no that's all done in the fourth jhana this is the fourth jhana stuff the coming from the perception um excuse me coming from the object that the perception creates which is the third jhana still but we're still just in feeling going into the fourth jhana there is when now we can start looking at perception itself how do we perceive things because in the third jhana we have such balance and such equanimity we can actually see things as they're being um perceived as a finished product from perception in other words we're talking about if you think about it like this in a factory say there's a garment factory that the garments come in as cloth then it becomes work in progress. And the work in progress is the big saws where they're cutting it according to the pattern. And then they take the patterns uh, and take it to the sewing machines and they stitch it up. Once it's all stitched up into the garment, now the garment itself is the finished product that needs to be boxed up and shipped out. So that the dress is actually the product that's being manufactured or is manufactured is the saliatana. That's the dress. The raw goods are the cloth that comes in the front door. That's the uh, that's your uh, uh, consciousness. And the entire work of the factory is the work in progress of taking the whole cloth, cutting it, stitching it, and making it into a fabric or not a fabric, making it into a garment, right? So once we get ourselves into the, so the factory then is like the, the factory of, of making thoughts is getting into the factory is like getting into the fourth jhana. Once we've gotten into the fourth jhana, now we can clearly see the dresses that are being, um, uh, that are already produced and are ready for shipment. As we do a more deeper investigation, we begin to see the process of how the garment is stitched together. And then we see how the garment is cut from the whole cloth. So if we are saying that the scene is merely the scene, that means that we see the whole cloth is merely the whole cloth. We just see the forms, the shapes, the colors that the eye presents without manufacturing it into a tree or a bush mm-hmm. or a person. So this and, is and where, that's that's for John is just seeing mm-hmm. the scene is the so scene. that when right because when we can put an end to perception that puts an end to feelings and that's the end of the story. There's nothing left. Now, there's a sutta where you can read this in, and that sutta is number 111, where it talks about these various stages. So the the first jhana is to pay attention to the applied and sustained thought. And that's what we're looking at. That's what our object of investigation is, is sustaining that wholesome thought, sustaining that wholesome thought, sustaining that wholesome thought, until we begin to really, really feel good. 
And now we're paying more and more mind moments about how good we feel and not talking about how good we feel anymore. We're just experiencing how good we feel. So that's how we go from the first jhana into the second jhana. And so as the feelings subside into more and more restful peace, then we begin to see how the mind actually functions. Then we get down to perception so that we can see. And by the way, the state of neither perception nor non-perception is actually the, the point where perception and, and um, consciousness contact each other. So that you, you have just enough perception to perceive what you're conscious of without having so much perception that you make something out of it, that you leave it completely empty. Oh, yeah, we're back I, to that word again. <laughs> yeah, that's what we're talking about here. Is so, <laughs> perception so, when you stop perceiving things that, that you leave them empty. So the time we perceive things is where we give it weight. So do you find you take a lot that of, whole cloth and make a dress out of it? Go ahead. Sorry. Oh, do you see a lot of value in trying to like get to the higher jhanas and like cultivate them over and over and over again? Or I, I guess no, I feel like no, no, I've, no. I've, let me I've answer only... that. Go ahead. Let me answer that right now. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, no. The answer to that is no. Not the higher jhanas. They're not higher. They're not higher. Okay. It's the first jhana. That's the teaching of the Buddha. Very, very specific. The path to enlightenment is through the first jhana, period. You have to develop the first jhana so that you can maintain it and sustain it and get very, very excellent at it. And when you're paying close attention to what's happening in the first jhana, by the very fact of what you're paying attention to determines the higher jhana that you're in. But all of the things that you pay attention to are available to be paid attention to in the first jhana. But when you're really, really paying attention to how good you feel to the point you're not even talking to yourself about it, that's when you can sustain the second jhana. But you need to be able to sustain wholesome thoughts or you'll never be able to sustain a momentary second jhana. Then we do the second jhana, I would say, Probably once a minute, one tenth one on average, at least every person in a in a one minute period of time will probably spend at least one mind moment in second jhana. Why? Because they're experiencing how they feel without thinking about how they feel. The next mind moment after that is thinking about how they feel, but actually paying attention to the feeling. That second jhana. The question is, can you maintain that and keep looking at the feeling, especially the feeling of how good you feel? And just experience over and over and over and over again, with no place to go and nothing to do, is just ex continue to experience, not thinking about it, just experience how wonderful and how marvelous it is right now. That's the second jhana. So, like, and we it, do that on a regular basis, but we don't do it for longer than about a tenth of a second. <laughs> so, <laughs> if you're in, like, if you're in, like, quote unquote, no mind for a sustained period of time, you're already past first jhana, kind of by definition. Right. If you are free from thoughts. The question is not, um, well, actually, the question would be you, you can have a conversation in that space the whole time, right? 
Well, the conversation that you have in in First Jhana is only the conversation of talking yourself into how marvelous you feel. No, I know. Okay, let's say let's say you're in no mind. There are no thoughts in the head. You feel great. I don't know that state. Nobody does. I mean, this is what. <laughs> what do you, What do you mean? Okay. Normal people do not have that. It's still mostly a concept for most people. And it is momentary. And it is a big pizzazz when it happens, but it doesn't last for very long. I, I guess I'm asking learn, just more from sustaining that at a number of times myself. I'm asking to kind of see how all this fits in okay. the definitions of like first, second, third, fourth, and how that applies into sustaining these in everyday life. Because mm -hmm. I have been able to sustain what you've described as in certain periods for a while. Um, and just kind of seeing like what the next steps are. Is it to always just try to go here, and then just let it happen? Or what? <laughs> no, no, no. You have to have skin in the game. You have to make it happen and you have to keep sustaining this first jhana. You have to keep making sure that in fact, wanting the second jhana is an unwholesome thought. Okay. When you're in first jhana thinking, oh, I'll go into second jhana, that's, that actually throws you out you of first jhana not, back into ordinary wanting. And you're not, you're not happy with you're not happy with the state you're in, so it's not going to produce a second jhana. Not going to produce a second jhana. Okay. No, what you do is you get more and more relaxed to so where things think, feel so good that you'd rather pay attention to how good you feel. So feeling, feeling, feeling really, really, really good without even thinking about it because you feel so good you can't even think about it. It's too good, feels too good for words. That's second jhana. But the way that Western people look at it, they think that second jhana is an attainment. It's something that you can get by doing something. No, second jhana is relaxing to the point that you're not doing anything much, including you're not even thinking about how good you feel. You just feel so good. And how you can sustain that is by, learn, by learning how to sustain wholesome thoughts. Because okay. that's an object that you can play. That's um, uh, quickly for musicians. A student musician should play well the music he's capable of playing so that he can perform or play more difficult music later. Okay. But most musicians, they want to play the best music that they can hear, which is often very complex music, and then they and feel... Then, uh, and then that, that stops them from ever getting to the ability to do that, if they want to play it, that right away. So, I guess going back to square one, then, would be a good idea. Can you help define more the difference between wholesome and unwholesome thought? Yes, we can. But let's do that at another time. I'll give you a quickie and then call again and we'll go into it in great detail. All right. The quickie is the quickie is, is that if it is not here right now, it's not wholesome. 
Okay. If you're thinking about the past, if you're thinking about the future, if you're thinking about Chicago, if you're thinking about old grandma, if you're thinking about going to town, if you're thinking at all, that's not first jhana. Okay, we have to get into a state of having wholesome thoughts only, and the wholesome thoughts are going to be thoughts of how nice it is. Well, this breath is a really good breath. Well, I'm really glad I don't have to go to town. Well, I'm really glad that there's no place to go. No place to go and nothing to do. Everything is okay. And we keep talking to ourselves into that little circle of how nice things are until we talk ourselves into feeling how nice things are. Reality. And then when it's only feeling, it's second jhana. Well, you're still trying to get first jhana. You're not even any jhanas yet. Okay. No, the development of the first jhana is 99 or at least 90% of all that you're going to do is all done in the first jhana. The rest of it, the second, third, fourth jhana and all of that is the fruit of the first jhana. Not a natural progression after the first jhana. So the focus is just first jhana. First jhana, first jhana, first jhana, first jhana, and the nicer the first jhana gets, the deeper into jhanas you go. Okay. But if you say, I'm in first jhana, I want second jhana, you've lost your first jhana, you're out of it, you want something you don't have. Yeah, okay. That really clears a lot of things up from, from what I've learned other places. Yeah, because when people do the second jhana, it's almost always accidental. When they're trying to do the second jhana, they never get it. And so they're always frustrated. So when they do wind up in second jhana, they get really glorified. Wow, look at that. Oh, I can do it. And when they do that, then they start talking to themselves about how nice it is. And they throw themselves right back out of the second jhana. Yeah, I can't say I've ever tried for it or it worked. It's always just been... A completely accidental. <laughs> yeah. Um, oh, okay. Well, it wasn't. It was just you were missing the uh, what's the cause and what's the effect. So you're trying to add a cause to get an effect, and that cause uh, uh, disqualified the effect. It's like going to your daddy and ask for the keys to the car and daddy says no. And then you start jumping up and down and screaming at dad and telling him what a bad daddy is in order to get those keys. Right. Yeah. That approach often doesn't work. And that's exactly what you're doing. You're going <laughs> to the mine and say, give me the keys to my car. I want to go take a second John tour. And uh -huh. daddy says, no, you can't have the keys. And here we are jumping up. Now I won't take a John. I won't take a John. I won't take a John. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> that's why people don't get the second John is because they're wanting something and they don't know how to ask for it. So don't worry about the, all those jhanas up there. The idea is, can you get yourself completely satisfied and completely comfortable in that first jhana? And then we got work to do. So it's going to be really happy work. And what, what is that happy work? It's sustaining that first jhana. That's the first job that we got to do. Let's keep it going.
So let's finish now. I think that we've gotten uh, quite a lot. We started from emptiness and we went up with not enough. <laughs> Bunch of nothing, in fact. Fourth Jhana, nothing to it, really. I mean, seriously, there's really nothing to it. <laughs> so there's no reason to want it. What you really want is to be happy. So let's do that. Yeah. Yeah, to be okay, to be satisfied, to be a champion of your own world. To be the emperor of your own pile of dirt. So we'll finish now. This has been a really great talk. Thank you, Brandon. I really appreciate your questions. Well, no problem. Well, there wasn't really much to it, was there? <laughs> I mean, I guess it sounds like there was. <laughs> great to meet you, Brandon. Good to meet you, too. Um, Parker. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, Brandon, we'll, we'll see you soon. Yeah, sounds good. Um, Go enjoy yourself. Don't do anything. Just sit here and just enjoy. Yeah, I think I'm just going to put some music on and just whatever. <laughs> yeah, the sound of silence, Garfunkel. <laughs> Okay, guys. We'll see ya. See ya. See ya. Thank you, Parker. I really enjoyed this too. Yes. Yeah, thanks. Nice to meet you, man. Yeah. yeah. Marvelous fast statement there. <laughs> <laughs>